morning, I'm just going to read our scripture for today. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, and if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and, and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but for the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When he entered the synagogue, a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he came to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, it is lawful on the Sabbath, uh, sorry, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Beautiful. Thanks, Jess. Uh, well, welcome to church. I've got another light on today, so I wanted to see your faces. Uh, you, you're far too... Oh, Bernsie, you're still attached, bro. Um, <laughs> tethered to the stage. Um, very good. Um, I, I'm really aware that there's uh, lots of things that people are facing 
um, across the life of our church. Um, Andrew and Ruth Hewitt uh, lost Andrew's mum on Friday afternoon. She passed away and Andrew was able to be there uh, with her as she passed into glory and uh, all of the family were together. So please be praying for the Hewitts um, this week as they navigate all of the things that need to happen with their family up in Foster um, as they organise all that needs to be organised. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm aware that there's plenty going on and there's complexity and there's hardship and there's suffering and there's um, difficult things that people are facing um, within our own church community. Um, and so I want to pray and um, ask that God would meet us in his word this morning uh, with his grace and that he would minister to us, um, not through what I've got to say, but through um, his word as it has already been read over us, that there would be a healing work um, and a work of power that God is doing um, through his spirit and by his word. Um, so Father, we come recognizing that um, life is at times really unfair and really difficult and there are so many questions that uh, go unanswered. And Father, along with that comes the frustrations and the disappointments and all of the things that can weigh down on us, that can cloud our vision, perhaps, of your grace and your beauty. Uh, Father, I pray this morning that as we open your word, Father, that we would see the beautiful person that you are in Jesus, that we would see your majesty and your glory. And Father, as we read your word, as we study your word, as um, we hear your words spoken. Father, I pray that you would be healing all of the things. Father, you would meet us right where we are at. Father, you see the bigger picture and we don't. And Father, that ought to give us some hope. And so for whatever hope there may be for us, Lord, I pray that we would hold on to that with both hands this morning. Father, believing that you are, as we have sung, who you say you are. That you have all things in your hands and that you are working together the good for those who love you. And Father, we pray that that would be the testimony of our lives, Lord, that you are working for good in our lives, bringing all things together, that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, <clears throat> I love that we're reading big chunks of Scripture together. It's like we're sitting down to a, a meal of meat and three veg. It's not just one of those... You know, meals you get at a fancy restaurant where they give you the enormous plate and just the little portion that's perfectly served, albeit how good is that when you have a, a delicious meal like that. Um, but when it comes to the Gospel of Mark, this is more like a, a schnitty and chips pub meal that there's chips hanging out over the edges and it's okay if the gravy gets spilt down our shirts um, because this is us doing real life with God's Word that we would take it, that we would feast on it, that we would enjoy it. Um, and can I encourage you, if you really want to suck the marrow out of the bones of this series and get the most out of this, continue to have conversations during your um, week with your friends and with your family around the scriptures that we're reading and speaking through um, each week. If that means joining a life group, if that means writing down questions on a Sunday that you want to ask, feel free to ask them of other people or myself. However, that looks to dive deeper and to really suck out all of the nutrients and all of the richness um, that God has for us. Um, because this is about applying God's word to our life. The book of Mark is about who is Jesus and how do we follow him more fully. And so if we can take his nature and his character and we observe the way he lived and as his followers we absorb that and we live that out, um, we are doing what we are called to do, to love God and to love others. 
So today in the Word, we have three big moments. There's technically four, if it's broken down in your Bible like it is mine. Um, But I'm going to lump them into three, uh, because the fourth one, the man that got um, healed on the Sabbath of the the withered hand, was an object lesson of Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath. And uh, each one of these encounters um, certainly well deserve their own treatment. We could park up in the, the calling of Matthew. We could, uh, we could park up in Jesus speaking on fasting and the new wineskins. We could park up um, in the man of, with a withered hand and we could give days and days and days just to those on their own. But for the purposes of today, um, I'm bracketing them together as one. And uh, no less, though, will we see the wonder and the beauty of Jesus as we look at these as a collective. So the question stands is that in all these three encounters, what do they have in common? You know, is it possible to look at these three and see a common thread of what they are saying to us? What do they collectively tell us about who Jesus is? And I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is yes, there is a common thread. <clears throat> Sometimes I like to leave you hanging till the very end, draw it out and then drop something in the end that brings it all together. But today I'm going to be up front and I'm going to say these three encounters, the calling of Matthew, Jesus on fasting, Jesus and his teaching about the Sabbath, they paint for us a picture of the shocking, outrageous, indiscriminate, bordering on senseless and irrational, unfair, irreligious, ridiculous, absurd, offensive, infinite, and scandalousness of God's grace, which Jesus exhibited, not just in these three encounters, but all the way through the totality of his life and ministry. These are stories of the scandalousness of God's grace. So if you're taking notes, The scandal of grace is where we are going today. Now, according to the word wizards at the Oxford Dictionary, I think we pulled out the Merriam-Webster the other week, so we thought we'd give the Oxford a go today. Something that is scandalous is defined as causing general public outrage by a perceived offence against morality or law. Or something that is shocking or offensive. We say, that's just scandalous. It's shocking or it's offensive to us or something involving immoral or shocking things that a person has done or is believed to have done. Now, we know that Jesus didn't sin. We know that he didn't hurtfully and purposefully hurt or offend people. We know that Jesus didn't break any of the law, and Jesus certainly didn't go against the grain of biblical morality. But he did cause outrage. And this is the beginning. Last week I spoke about things gathering ahead of steam with the miracles. This is the moment where the outrage starts to be noticed by the Pharisees and by the onlookers at what Jesus was doing in his ministry. People were offended by him. He acted in ways that shocked a lot of people. And this shouldn't surprise us one bit. See, Jesus lived and ministered in the first century. He was a Jewish man steeped in Jewish society, living in a, um, a time that was dominated by Roman rule. 
And we see in the Gospels that his words and actions were an affront to all that was deemed acceptable and appropriate within his own religious tradition. Jesus went against the grain. It is demonstrably clear in the Gospels that Jesus' actions were lovingly rebellious, that they were radically subversive as he turned the ideas and expectations of those who thought they knew their way to God and life on their head. Jesus went around doing what he did to turn up all of the expectations, all of the things that people thought were the way to life, and he showed another way. And it can be seen clearly in the text today that Jesus took the religious, he took the social and cultural norms of his day that were designed to promote things like elitism and classism, you know, things that were designed to reinforce social power structures that thrived on creating division in the community, those kinds of people and these kinds of people, the haves and the have-nots, and the divisions within the community that were created to give people a sense of personal gain or personal power. And Jesus, in these encounters, began to dismantle these constructs, one compassionate and loving, scandalous act at a time. We've said it before that Jesus flipped the script. There was a particular script that the world was running by and Jesus tipped it on its head. And we see this right before our eyes in the Word today. And the first encounter that we come across is Jesus adding to his team chap number five in the calling of Levi, otherwise known as Matthew. Now, it would have been expected that a coming king who would finally set free the nation of Israel would come with some kind of military or political might and muscle to back them in. It also would have been expected, as with most kings, that there would have been an entourage of people alongside or in his wings that would have been skilled, that would have been useful, that would have been trained to be effective in their work at seeing their king Succeed. Though what we see here is Jesus, having already done in choosing the four salty sea dogs from chapter 1, we see him doing here again. He does it differently. Jesus was by the seaside again. There were crowds coming to hear his teaching. He was meandering the streets of Galilee looking for, I don't know, lunch, perhaps a fish taco. I had one of them for lunch yesterday. Saw the Barbie movie yesterday. Hey, controversy. It was awesome. If you ever want to have a good laugh, see the Barbie movie with Greg Burns Mickelson's. <clears throat> the man can laugh out loud at inappropriate times. Jesus walked past a man named Levi who was sitting at his booth. And it was his job to sit at that booth and collect tax from his own people. Matthew, by virtue of his profession, would have been a really disliked guy. Tax collectors in those days were considered the loan sharks of society. They were, if you like, the used car salesman. No offense if you're a used car salesman 
in the room, but these guys were, um, they were dishonest, they were greedy, they were immoral, and worse still to a Jew, tax collectors were ceremonially unclean because of their frequent interaction with non-Jewish people. Tax collectors were really a disliked, hated, on-the-nose bunch of people that had no place being welcomed into a place of standing in the community. And it goes without saying that Jesus asking Matthew, the tax man, to come and follow him alongside four fishermen, who that wasn't their recreation. These guys were small business owners who were probably taxed by Matthew, the tax man. This is an interesting choice indeed, that Jesus would pick Matthew of all people to be the fifth member of his crew. I mean, it would have been like, I think, the awkward moment that happens at schools. And I hope they've stopped doing this because it was so horrible. When the PE teacher says, we're going to play a game and I need two captains. He picks the two captains. And then the captains pick their team. And we know how that script goes. They pick the kids who are really good at sport. And they pick the kids who have proven themselves to be really great. And then they pick the second best. And then the third best, and it's kind of tit for tat, you know, bargaining for and auctioning off almost, you know, we'll have you, and we'll have you, we'll have you, we'll have you. And then there's the one kid that can't catch a ball to save his life, standing there going, I haven't been picked. How horrible. That was Matthew. Matthew was like the kid who should have been last picked. I mean, it seems that Jesus either knew nothing about team dynamics Nothing about team leadership, that perhaps Jesus didn't understand HR best practice, or he was socially unaware of how things work together, or Jesus picking Matthew to join these other guys was truly up to something spectacular. I mean, why on earth would Jesus invite a man of such disrepute, a man so disliked, so unlikely to be of any use to his kingdom revolutionary cause onto his team and follow him. I mean, this pairing is akin to tuna and ice cream. It just doesn't work. Or broccoli and anything. They, it, just, it just doesn't work. I mean, it gets more interesting as the day goes on. Not only was now Matthew walking the streets with Jesus, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, probably much to the confusion of everybody who set their eyes on them, the next thing Mark records for us is that Jesus is at Matthew's house, not just having a discussion over the front fence, but Jesus is reclining at Matthew's dining room table, eating canapes, cheese and bickies, a glass of rosé. It wasn't just Jesus and Matthew and the other four guys. The whole tax collecting fraternity were joining them also. This was Matthew putting on Friday afternoon drinks 
for all of the tax collecting community and many others of notable disrepute. And here was Jesus in the midst of these people appearing to be so at ease with them. Reclining amongst them at their table. This wasn't how it was meant to go. I mean, we don't know the contents of their conversation, but I assume like any dinner party, the topics of their conversation ranged anywhere from how's the weather been this week, to who was playing in the footy this weekend, to where the fish were biting. They no doubt would have been grilling Jesus on how the heck he'd been doing all of these miraculous things, how he'd healed all these people. They would have been asking him, what are you doing in this den of iniquity? Because that is what it was. What was Jesus doing there? What business did Jesus have there? And we know that this whole setup was a shock to all people in how the scribes of the Pharisees responded. They saw what was going on and they asked Pete, Andy, Jimmy and John, hey guys, why is Jesus eating with the tax collectors? Can you let us, like, just, they weren't angry, I don't think. I think they were just curious. Hey guys, can you, what, what, what is Jesus doing? Having dinner with sinners. Like, this is confusing. Jesus isn't meant to do this. Religion doesn't do that. Religion doesn't associate with that. But here Jesus is at a table eating a delicious meal with people he shouldn't have been eating with. And Jesus, probably keeping an ear out, expecting such a response of questioning, he chimed in before the other boys had a chance to blow it. And he says to them, those who are well have no need for a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Now, if the tabloids back then were anything like the tabloids and the headlines and the gossip magazines are today, they would have had an absolute field day with Jesus. And that's how popular news and media works, right? You open up your news app, you open up the news thing in Facebook and all of the headlines, all they are doing is designed to cause outrage. The headlines would have been seething. Carpenter joins forces with Fishos and Finance Guy to change the world. So-called king befriends the dregs of Galilee. Saviour savors time with sinners over dinners. You like that one? Messiah mingles with wrong crowd. Son of God seen with wine at dinner. Amba, busted. I mean, this whole setup broke every convention of what society expected. Jesus was announcing in both word and action that his way of running things was different than anything anyone had ever seen before. I mean, in those days, to eat with someone at their table was a sign of welcome and intimacy. I mean, much like it is for us. 
but probably deepened and amplified in their culture. It was a way of saying, I want to be close to you. Having a meal with somebody says, I want my life to be integrated with yours. To share a meal is a mutual exchange of invitation into somebody else's life. Having a meal with someone is a way to say, you're welcome here. It's a way to say, I see you. It's a way to say, I value you. It's a way of saying, I want to be vulnerable with you. As we eat this meal, I'm going to watch you get something stuck in your teeth and spill it down yourself. It's like, don't eat ribs on a first date, kids. There's vulnerability in a meal to create space for this relationship to develop and deepen. Having a meal with somebody says, I want to catch what matters, you to catch what matters to me and I catch what matters to you. Now I see purpose in this relationship, so let's eat. I mean, that Jesus would communicate this to Matthew by reclining at his table is not just profound, but a scandal of the highest order. This moment was shocking. It was jarring. It was offensive. It was outrageous, irrational, irreligious. It seemed unfair. This is scandalous grace. The people of Galilee would have been absolutely incensed. What is Jesus doing with Matthew? Matthew didn't deserve this. Matthew deserves to fend for himself. Matthew has enough money. He's been ripping us off for years. What business does Jesus have doing at Matthew's house with Matthew's mates, the down and outers? What have they done to deserve this kind of attention? Now, guys or girls with a track record like Matthew or any of his cronies, in the eyes of the religious and cultural laws, had no place being in the company of the perfect, holy, sinless, righteous Son of God. At that time, around about John's disciples and Pharisees, they were all fasting as was customary for them to do according to the Sabbath laws. And having seen Jesus eating and drinking with sinners, they came to Jesus and raised the question. They said, Jesus, everyone else is fasting. All of us, the whole, the whole town. And you're up there at Matt's place. We saw the Uber Eats bike pull up out the front. We know you're up in there having a good old time. You're eating the pizza, you're having the wine, everyone else is fasting. Why is it that while we're not fasting, or sorry, while we're fasting, you guys aren't? And Jesus, using two metaphors, communicates something powerful to them. He says, no one who has a rip in their clothes goes and, and, and gets a a patch and cuts it out and, and without pre-shrinking it, sews it onto the broken bit. Because inevitably that patch will, if it hasn't been pre-shrunk, will shrink. And when it does shrink, it's actually going to tear that shirt and it's going to make a bigger hole than what was there in the first place. And he says, think about a wineskin, which for us who live in these latter days... Is a goon bag. You know those space blanket looking things that hold wine? That's what a wineskin was. 
but they were much more temperamental than what our silver packaging is these days. They were made of animal skin, of leather. And as these wineskins aged, they would become more brittle. They would become less elastic. And when you go to put new wine into that new wineskin, and as that wine continues to ferment, it is going to break that wineskin to smithereens. You know, when new wine was put into a wineskin like that, the wine would turn gross. It would fall apart. And probably really not quite all that sure of what Jesus was talking about. They walked away scratching their heads. Gah! What is with this guy? What is up with Jesus? He's breaking all the rules. A pastime which Jesus embedded quite purposefully into the way he went about things. Jesus was a rule breaker. I love Jesus. How good are breaking rules? I was telling a story this week and Tom reminded me, I snuck past Shark Park this week and I heard a commotion going on in there and the gates were all shut and locked and I saw another gate that was open that's for the players and I thought, I'll just go in and have a little bit of a sticky beat. Go and watch the Sharks training. It's kind of a free ticket to the footy. And so I moseyed on in there and and, uh, parked up on the grass and you know, watching the guys play. It was awesome. Anyway, a guy comes up to me. What are you doing here? Are you waiting for someone? I said, no, I'm just watching the guys train. Is that all right? He says, no. <laughs> like, uh, all right. Anyway, um, I snuck out and it was all good in the end. Uh, <clears throat> there was no sign that said you can't be here for training, um, but clearly it's probably not the right thing. I like breaking rules. <laughs> there was another Sabbath. And they were all meant to be fasting and Jesus and the disciples were walking through a field. They were getting a little bit peckish. And as they were walking through the field, they saw the the corn growing on the side of the track. And so being hungry, they did probably what any of us would do. They got out the butter and the salt and pepper. You know, corn, when you char grill it, they would lit a fire, crack the corn, butter, salt, pepper, a bit of spicy aioli, bit of lime over the top, mm, tucking into the corn on Sabbath. And the same mob saw this happening again. They were outraged. You guys are eating on the Sabbath again? What gives? And Jesus turns and he, I didn't even realize this was a story. I didn't realize the connection. He said, guys, don't you remember the story about David, King David, when he was so hungry that he went into the temple where the bread of the presence was, like the holiest communion bread you could ever imagine. No one could touch this stuff except the priest on certain days at certain times. And David was just a little bit peckish, like the guys walking in the field that day. It's like, gee, I'm a bit hungry. And he thought, well, I know where there's some bread. And he walks into the temple and he breaks the bread and he eats it. He says to them, guys, don't you get it? The Sabbath isn't made for us to adhere to by rule. We are made to enjoy the Sabbath. Can someone pass me more corn? And not long after, Jesus walks into the synagogue. And it was still the Sabbath. And a man with a withered hand, a a broken, disformed hand was there. And 
Jesus called him over where the Pharisees could see and he asked the question, would it be lawful if I healed this man today? On the Sabbath? Can I do this? Jesus could see the cogs in their heads starting to turn, searching for every reason why this guy shouldn't be healed on the Sabbath. Mark tells us that they stood there in sheer silence. Jesus was heartbroken that they would let the rules get in the way of this man's healing. That they were going through the catalogue of every single reason why this guy before them did not deserve the grace of Jesus just because of the rules that say he shouldn't. Jesus' heart was broken. That religiosity would get in the way of another's healing. I mean, again, the headlines would have been seething. Man who calls himself God works on Sabbath. Son of man eats burger on fasting day. Disciples pick corn when hungry. How dare they? Sandal-wearing son of man claims he's bigger than the Sabbath. Jesus does good even on his day off. I mean, isn't, isn't Jesus beautiful? Isn't he just... Isn't Jesus just wonderful? When we look at how he loved that he would choose someone who never deserved to be chosen. That he would comprise his team of people so radically different from each other and build a community of love and purpose out of them. I mean, that's beautiful. That Jesus would go, you guys are so different. You're a fisherman and you're a finance guy. You guys feed the community and you steal from them. It's come together. I mean, that's grace. This is what Jesus does. He takes a community of disparate people, people who have nothing in common, people who are from different ends of every spectrum there is in life, and he brings them together as family and calls them his own, and he makes a home among them. That Jesus would bring all of us together with all of our differences, our differences of how we like to worship, differences on what we believe to be true, differences on how we vote, differences on all of the different things that we can possibly be different on. And Jesus makes a family out of us, a loving community of purpose. And he's beautiful. That he would be found in a place of deep connection and relational intimacy with sinful people. That Jesus would make his home among those who never deserved to be at home with Almighty God. He's just beautiful. That he would put himself on the line by eating when everyone else and he was meant to be fasting. That he would put his own life and reputation on the line to say there's something new happening here. There is new wine for this world. 
Not the old stale wine of religion, but there is new wine, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, an outpouring of grace, an outpouring of love, an outpouring of inclusion, an outpouring of the gospel going forward that will change. And if you resist it, watch out because the old thing will break. And I think that's something that God is doing in the church, inevitably and invariably all of the time. He is pouring new wineskin. And if we are too brittle and not elastic enough to receive what God is doing, we will burst. And God is calling us to be more elastic and more receptive to contain what he is doing. I mean, that he would radically confront the conventions of religion and reframe the day of rest in a whole new life-giving way. Oh man, we don't have to strive and we don't have to work hard to be in his presence. But he gifts us with a day of rest to find joy and find delight and be found in his presence. Not bound by the have-dos and the should-dos and got to do that and got to do this. Man, that he would give us a way to enjoy life-giving rest. He's beautiful. I mean, that he would heal a man literally on the turf of religiosity. You know, on the ground, the sacred ground of the synagogue where the Pharisees' rules reigned. That Jesus calls a man to himself with a broken heart for all of the hardness of the room. He just says, hey mate, your hand be better in my name. And his hand is restored to perfection. He's beautiful. I mean, that Jesus would challenge religious power so sharply that he would love so radically that he would confront the hardness of the human heart, not with rage, but with compassion. Jesus doesn't confront all of these social structures and religious structures with a sense of anger. He doesn't get on Facebook and rah! Hey, with a gentle, kind, compassionate posture toward the world. That's how he worked. That he would restore a man when everyone else was willing to let the rules keep him sick. That he would do all of this knowing it was the beginning of his own destruction. Friends, this is scandalous grace. It's just beautiful to see how Jesus loves. You see, the enemy would have you believe that your acceptability to God is anything but a gift. I mean, this world and its culture of performance will constantly try and keep you trapped in a mode that keeps you thinking you have to do more, have more, achieve more, accumulate more, or believe more of this or that to find favor in God's eyes. And the enemy, he will tell you that to be acceptable to God, you must be this kind of person. Live this kind of way, believe this version of the truth. Vote on this side of things, hang out with those kinds of people and not those kinds of people. You must behave like this, not be seen there or with them. When spiritual and cultural dynamics aside, our own human fears and insecurities do a good enough job of condemning us. In our fallen human state, we all have stories that we tell ourselves about our own shortcomings, our own deficiencies, our own weaknesses, and all the reasons why you and I feel unworthy to receive this scandalous grace. 
Both the power of evil in the world and the nature of sin that so easily entangles us collude to keep us stuck in a cycle of grief. But Jesus, in his grace so scandalous, welcomes us to something so much more. And the reason that grace is so scandalous is that, like Matthew, your welcome and invitation at God's table is not based on any performance, not based on any accolade or achievement, but only on His goodness. That is good news. Your invitation at God's table and His deep desire to recline at yours is not based on your past, it's not based on your job, not based on your age, your beliefs, your income, not based on your family of origin, not based on your cultural background, not based in any of these things, but grounded deeply in His grace. Grace that says, it is only by faith in me, Jesus says, that you can be saved. Not through what you can do, not through what you have done, not through what you have achieved, not by any works past, present or future, but by my grace and my grace alone. And if you're anything like me, it's easy to fall into the trap of feeling like we must do for God, for God to do for us. And that's just religion in its rawest form. That is a law-driven life from which Jesus came to set us free from. The scandalous grace of Jesus is found in the unconditional love he has for us and the invitation to live free of the performance traps that we set for ourselves or that others set for us. Now, there's no ledger in the kingdom of God that operates on a tit-for-tat basis. You did this, then I will do that. There is no way of earning more of God's love. There is no way of earning your seat at the table. Just the gracious invitation of Jesus for you to join him in his presence and you and be present with you. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. I mean, God's grace is so scandalous because it does not require you to clean up your life before Jesus welcomes you in. God's grace is so scandalous because he cares more about you than any rule or ritual that religion writes. God's grace is so scandalous because it turns all the old ways on their head and his grace makes a way for the new. God's grace is so scandalous because it lets you eat the corn or the bread whenever you're hungry. God's grace is so scandalous because he sets us free from the religiosity of rule-keeping and welcomes us to a life of faith that is marked with joy. And God's grace is so scandalous because it confronts the hardness of our hearts and welcomes us to another way of living. It's so scandalous because he'll break all the rules to heal us. His grace is so scandalous because our freedom cost him his all. And we are the Matthews. We are the ones, and I'll invite the band to come up and we'll finish now. You know, we, we are the ones so undeserving. And the word tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That the scandal of grace 
is that Jesus has gone to the most extraordinary lengths in what it cost him to live the life that he lived, in what it cost him to show grace in the way that he did. Grace and a way of being that took him all the way to the cross, where he gave everything in the most spectacular act of love that you and I never really deserved. But the scandalousness of his grace to break all of the rules to get to you and I. That's what he has done. And so what is our response? Let's stand together. What is our response to this grace? I mean, is there any other response but to lay our lives down in totality before his feet in awe and reverence? And just say, Jesus, how beautiful you are. How you lived, how you operated, how you loved, how you showed compassion, how you included, how you were so radically subversive, how you rewrote the script, how you welcomed people, how you invited them in, how you were willing at cost to your own reputation, show love. And the willingness, the cost of his own life to give us a home in his presence. What else can we do but lay our lives down? So Father, in this moment, I pray that we would fall on our knees before you, either figuratively or quite literally if people want. Father, your grace is so abounding and so amazing and so wonderful that you are so beautiful in the way that you have loved us. Father, I pray that that would be the love with which we love our world. Father, not willing to allow any rules or rights or religiosity get in the way of our loving others. Father, all the barriers and all of the walls and all of the things that can divide. Father, I pray with the compassion that you had and the love that you had that we would go and love like that. Father, from a place of knowing how much grace has been afforded us, may we be a people of grace in our world. To sit with those that we shouldn't. To welcome into church community those who apparently don't fit or shouldn't. That we'd give an hour to the people in Kmart that maybe they don't deserve our time, but we'd give them that hour and we would see miracles happen. Father, use us, this community of grace, to see this world healed. In Jesus' name, amen.